Hey, Paul, so about as of this recording a week ago, the Holy Father produced a, what would you call this document? It's got a special name, Desiderio, Desideravi. Uh, what is it? Yeah, so it is a, uh, it's an apostolic letter, um, mm -hmm. which is, um, so it's a part of the Pope's um, magisterium. Uh, it's less authoritative than something like a encyclical, but it's more that more authoritarian authoritative than something like a Wednesday catechesis. So it's a, okay. yeah. Um, and it's about the liturgy and um, it's one of the few documents about, um, few magisterial documents about the liturgy since Vatican II that, that dives into the theology of it. So uh, it's really exciting. Yeah, I think you've read it probably a whole lot more than I have. I've read through it this past week and it was just, it was stunning. There were just these, just full of these beautiful, beautiful little points. Um, so let's dive into it. And what we're going to talk about today is some of the historical context and, and, and why this, this document has emerged at all. And, uh, and then go through some of, some of your favorite points. Um, and especially some of the points that resonate in particular with this show. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to hit all three of our pillars, uh, very directly. Fantastic. Well, there we go. So welcome everybody. We're talking about Pope Francis and the liturgy. This is the show, the Pope Francis Generation, the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel they might not belong in the church anymore, but who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the charisma, the doctrine of theosis, and the teaching of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. So, uh, Paul, why don't we, I, I think we've briefly outlined what this is. It's a document on the liturgy. Um, can you give us a very brief overview of the points that it hits, and then we'll move into the historical context and, and why he's even penned this at all. Yeah, I mean, I will try to not, uh, I think I messaged you earlier today, and I was like, this conversation is going to be me reading a passage and then gushing about it <laughs> and wash, rinse, and repeat. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I will try not to do that too much. Um, uh, this came out last week, and I've been, uh, man, when it came out, I was neck deep in writing a huge uh, term paper. Uh, for my summer classes. So I had to intentionally set it aside and ignore it uh, mm -hmm. until after I got that done. So um, man, now, now I forget your question. Oh, you want to know what it's about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Brief overview. So um, it's a follow-up to the Pope's motu proprio from last summer, Traditionis mm -hmm. Custodis, which put um, more regulations on the celebration of the old pre-Vatican II liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, however, that's far from the focus of it. Mm -hmm. It's 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 very much a theological uh, text, and it focuses on and we'll and we'll walk through this in more detail. But it really focuses on right from the the title itself, mm -hmm. God's desire for us, mm -hmm. and how we encounter God's desire for us through the sacramental symbols of the liturgy yes. and then some things that prevent us from being able to do that and some things that help us be able to do that mm -hmm. yeah I, I was i just finished reading it last night in preparation for our conversation today i was gripped by uh an attention to the centrality of the mass and, and growing up as a traditionalist you know we're, we're at mass if not every day of the week and going to byzantine right um and also the um uh, extraordinary form you know there's there's high masses going on all the time and there's an you know altar boys my brothers and myself were altar boys anywhere that we could be at every point my parents had us up on that altar you know um so there's an incredible attention to the rubrics and the details and the reverence and, and so on and but what i loved about this document and made me look back at my childhood and realize what he's articulated here about the point of the, the lived out living symbolism uh, and reality of of the liturgy. And I realized that none of that was clear to me. It was sort of clear, it's not actually clear. So mm -hmm. doing that, revivifying the need for symbolism, and like, like the Holy Father always does, he talks about these ideas and then he brings them down at these concrete little, little 
realities. Like I loved this one point right in the center where he talks about bring back the, the sign of the cross and this simple guiding of a grandparent's large hand holding the child's hand and guiding it and stepping back and encouraging, you know, and it's that same thing that we, we are called to do um, together with the priests and so on. But anyhow, so it was uh, like you kind of gushing. I need to just, let's get into it. Bef okay. You mentioned that the context for this was last summer's document uh, yes. seeking to, well, what do we start with there? What? Why did he issue that that document last summer, and it just created a ton of back and forth? What was the point of of last summer? Yeah. So um, there's a lot we could say about his motu proprio last su summer that put regulations on the old mass. Um, but I'm going to give like a five thousand foot flyby of the past sixty years. Um, so. Uh, you have the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, and the very first document that they that they promulgated was a Sacrosanctum Concilium on on the sacred liturgy, mm -hmm. and um, they saw that as a, a renewal, a reform of the liturgy is extremely important, and we'll talk about that more later. Anyways, so they so the council fathers said we need to come up with new liturgical texts, make some reforms to the liturgy. So that fell to, it was John the 23rd uh, who opened the council. It was Paul the sixth who ended it. So it fell to him to promulgate a new liturgy. So um, at, a few years after the council, um, Pope Paul the sixth approved the Novus Ordo or the new mass. Um, and he promulgated it as the Roman rite. Um, one, Roman right. And other than some rare exceptions, um, it seemed like his intention really was to abrogate um, the uh, the old mass, the Vitus Ordo, right? The old mm -hmm. mass. Right. Um, now, there were problematic responses to this. So uh, in many places, um, at least in the US and in Europe, there were a lot of uh, innovations that happened at a local level, either mm -hmm. a parish level or a diocesan level. Uh, I mean, these are the, and I've never, I've seen a lot of liturgical abuses. I've never seen the infamous clown masses, but that was this time in the few decades following mm -hmm. Paul VI's promulgation of this, where we saw some of the worst liturgical abuses in that sense. But there was another bad reaction uh, to this, and that was from uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and um, so he started the Society of Pope Pius X. Mm -hmm. um, now he opposed both the liturgical changes as well as some of the magisterial teachings of the council. And his opposition, uh, I mean, um, Word on Fire a couple of years ago published um, a letter that Paul VI wrote, a personal letter that he wrote to Archbishop Lefebvre and really like bringing the hammer down on his opposition to papal authority and magisterial authority. Mm -hmm. um, it reads a lot like <laughs> their interaction between Paul VI and Archbishop Lefebvre reads a lot like the discourse that I see between um, the people who oppose uh, the teaching of Pope Francis, right? Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, man, I'm getting lost in the weeds. I need to do this quick. Okay, so Archbishop Lefebvre, his opposition rose to the point where he illicitly ordained uh, priests. Um, without permission from Rome. And he was subsequently excommunicated by John Paul II for that. Um, so then the the FSSP group was created to be a home for members of the SSPX, Archbishop Lefebvre's group, mm -hmm. who wanted to celebrate the Vitus Ordo, the old mass, but who didn't agree with the archbishop's actions that got him excommunicated. Um, and then uh, 80s, 90s, early 2000s, um, John Paul II and Pope Benedict um, gave more permission and more privileges to Catholics who wanted to celebrate the old mass. And this culminated in um, Benedict's 2007 motu proprio summarum pontificum that gave um, pretty broad permissions for any priest 
to celebrate the Vitus Ordo if they wanted. Mm -hmm. Pope Benedict also, he was the one who really created this, this idea, this conception of the Roman Rite uh, has two forms, the ordinary mm -hmm. form, which is the Mass of Paul VI, mm -hmm. and the extraordinary form, which is the, the old Mass, the pre-Council pre Mass. Um, last year, Pope Francis issued his own motu proprio um, that revoked Summorum Pontificum, it gave bishops much more control over the celebration of the old mass in their diocese. And instead of using the language of ordinary form and extraordinary form, he mm -hmm. said that the, that the new mass is the one, and the phrase he used was unique, the one unique expression of the Roman rite. Um, and in my mind, Pope Francis really, his intention is to sunset, fade out the use mm -hmm. of the old mass. Um, and he seems to be much more, um, much more similar in mind to Paul the Sixth, um, with his intentions with the old mass than say John Paul II or Pope Benedict. Um, no, though Francis did explicitly give the FSSP community permit, um, he's he essentially exempted them from um, his motu proprio so that they can continue celebrating the old mass. Mm -hmm. So that's the like historical context. Um, gotcha. of this argument. And then there's a lot more to say, and there's a lot of polemics. There's a lot of hurt feelings um, from a lot of different people on this. But I think mm -hmm. that's that's like the 5,000 foot flyby. Yeah. And the, the intent for this is to bring the church into communion, that there should not be two two rites in, in the Roman church, right? Running side by side, but a single, as you said, unique expression. So now we... So if we, if it's not appropriate or apt to then say ordinary form, extraordinary form, uh, as one is on its way out or being sunset, um, what's a good way then to describe it? Just simply the mass, and then there's the old mass, the old mass, the Tridentine form that. Yeah, the the, the language that Francis's motu proprio used last summer was there's the mass, and then there's the vitus ordo, the the old mass. I see. Um, okay. I think Francis's intentions now, just as Francis really, um, you know, changed a lot of uh, what Benedict did in the, in, in this regard, mm -hmm. um, a future Pope could change what, what Francis is doing. There's still, I think a lot of hashing out and navigating mm -hmm. um, exactly how to implement uh, this great council of Vatican II. Mm -hmm. I see Francis's priorities as being he sees the liturgical reforms following the council as intimately connected to the pastoral and theological teaching of the council. Um, so that if you reject the liturgical reforms, you are implicitly or explicitly putting your, you're not in, you're not fully embracing the pastoral and theological teachings of the council. I think that's one thing. I think also he's responding to the present moment where he sees a lot of um, uh, a lot of bad behavior, a lot of bad intentions, a lot of ideology being wrapped up into um, the communities and groups and individuals who promote the old mass. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we'll talk about once we get into his brand new document, he mm -hmm. really, really hates anybody bringing in ideology or some ulterior agenda into the liturgy at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the, I mean, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we are gifted the liturgy through uh, his role as as the Pope, as the, the chair of Peter. And for, for that to be used as a weapon or a rallying cry against him is a bit of a, what's the word, non sequitur? Where it's... I for the mass, the source and summit of our faith, to be used for any reason other than to bring people into an encounter with Jesus Christ mm -hmm. is a huge blasphemy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, yeah, we shouldn't be having any ulterior agendas. Well, there's the segue then. So let's let's move into talking about this document because he's he is so hungry to restore Christ as the, um, uh, mm -hmm. well, and, and God as the the object and the goal. But then also, this refreshed reminder, which um, 
the, the, the active participation of the Church of God entering into this, this liturgy, this, this celebration. And um, that always got such a hard rap, or it was made so much fun of growing up. Um, and so let's talk about that. You know, I see it as as very much that, like you said, it's we still haven't understood this earth shaking shift that needed to happen. Um, you know, uh, emerging out of the past, in a way, it's very much like there's there are lessons you learn in the first half of life, right? For example, competition as a teen, you have to learn to compete, learn to succeed, and be better than them. Once you've learned that lesson, you can then learn things like. Um, collaboration, right? Complementarity. But those second half of life lessons don't make sense until you've learned the first ones. You, you, in a way, you can't reverse them, you know? And uh, looking back at the history of the liturgy in the church, I think it's fair to say we could see certain things needed to have their time uh, be established, to be become fixated as a concept, um, so that then when it's more fully revealed or more it's it's opened up or explained, then there's a greater understanding, and especially the sense of the priesthood of the laity. Yeah. The a liturgy is always evolving. Um, not in any type of rupture, but in an organic way, because it is the um the way that God communicates and reaches out and encounters us. The way that he's chosen to do that is through the material world. It's through signs and symbols. Um, and that means that the, the context of uh, the liturgy is somewhat dependent on the culture of that context, right? So this is this idea of enculturation, yes. where you keep what's essential to the liturgy, but then you allow the particular cultures to express that, right? So... Mm -hmm. You know, in the West, kneeling is a sign of reverence more than standing is. And standing is a sign of reverence more than sitting is. But that's not a universal thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what Francis is doing in this document is he's picking up very explicitly on the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. And he's bringing that to today. Um, and the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, like that didn't come out of the blue either. That's the fruit of 100, 150 years of, uh, of a growing liturgical movement. Mm -hmm. um, so we see, I think it was, was it Pope Benedict XV who was Pope during World War One? Anyways, whoever the Pope was during the First World War, there's one point where he comments and he says, this is a Catholic civil war. Because you have Catholic countries yeah. fighting Catholic wow. countries. You have baptized people, mm -hmm. murdering baptized people by the millions. And there's this sense of like, what's wrong? Yes. Are this and it raises the question of do the sacraments not work if this is what Christians are doing to each other? Mm -hmm. Um, but then you're like, well, no, the sacrament Jesus promised that the sacraments would work. So what's wrong? Mm -hmm. What's wrong is that, well, grace is being offered in the sacraments, in the liturgy. People are not receiving what's being offered. Mm -hmm. um, so this is why um, I'm going to read a passage from Sacrosanctum Concilium. So it's the first document of Vatican II. Um, the council says this, Mother Church earnestly desires that all the faithful should be led to that fully conscious and active participation in liturgical celebrations which is demanded by the very nature of the liturgy. Such participation by the Christian people as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a redeemed people, is their right and duty by reason of their baptism. In the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. So the most important thing, right? For it is the primary and indispensable source from which the faithful are to derive the true Christian spirit, and therefore pastors of souls must zealously strive to achieve it by means of necessary instruction in their in their pastoral work. And so there's this phrase, um, full and active and conscious participation. Mm -hmm. If grace is always being offered in the liturgy, 
What prevents us from receiving it is our lack of participation in it. And that's what the council saw as a key uh, as a key problem. And then um, one of the one of the f- future major documents of the council, Lumen Gentium, picked that up a little bit, and it said, taking part uh, in the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the font and apex of the whole Christian life. They, the people of God, offer the divine victim to God and offer themselves along with it. Something about the Mass, the Eucharistic mm-hmm. sacrifice makes it the font and apex, the source and summit of our faith. So our ability to fully and actively and consciously participate in it is like the most important thing. That's what the council is getting at. So why is that the case? That's the case because it's through the liturgy, it's through the sacraments, that we encounter uh, Jesus Christ, who is currently alive, who heals us and transforms us and makes us into Christ. When the council is talking about participation in the liturgy, it is not talking about um, being an altar server or being a reader or singing at mass. These things are important, but that's not primarily what it's talking about. Mm -hmm. It's talking about consciously and actively and uh, intentionally putting yourself on the altar. So when the Eucharistic liturgy begins in during mass, the bread and the wine are brought to the altar. And then uh, uh, the priest prepares them. And then he says, may my sacrifice and yours be acceptable to God. Now the priest's sacrifice is apparent. He's the one doing all the stuff. What's our sacrifice? Our sacrifice is supposed to be ourselves, where we consciously and intentionally put ourselves on the altar. Meaning, what am I bringing to Mass? What fears? What shame? What sins? What desires? What distractions? What am I bringing to Mass with me? And consciously putting that on the altar. Because what happens to the ordinary stuff, the ordinary bread and wine on the altar, when the priest calls down the Holy Spirit and says the words of Jesus? The ordinary stuff becomes divine. So what happens if we are on the altar when the priest calls down the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. We become divine. That's the whole point of Mass. So when so when uh, Pope Benedict XV looks out on the First World War and sees Christians killing Christians by the millions, he's like, that transformation is not happening. Something needs to change. Something needs to be different. I've talked yeah. a lot. No, what that's fine. Thoughts? I'm just like, I'm... That just seemed to me to be such an evident and obvious thing. I mean, like you say, standing on on that war, looking at these lines of Christians shelling each other for the glory of God. Um, and then looking back at the last several hundred years after the, the um, councils of Trent and all the good they were trying to do, and then the, the Europe is still rift by, um, rivened, riftened? torn apart uh, by by centuries of, of war. And it's like, it's not, it's not being fixed. It's not changing. Gorgeous things are being created, of course. You know, beautiful academies and, and you know, depth and, and philosophy and, and so on. All that's being pursued, and that's a different discussion. But in terms of the transformation of the average person and the, the church seeing herself not as a, a, a an army uh, with battalions made up of priests and religious, but as a sacrament to the world that incorporates every member, every person. Um, uh, I could I, I could understand a, a sense of depression, looking at it, all of that, a sense of failure, and then to have the Second World War following that, and then to have the 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 what is it, seventy years of Cold War. Um, you know, and I think we're still kind of kicking some of that around. And there's this fear. I remember reading a little bit of history at the time. They were convinced there was a third war going to happen. That was going to be it. You know, I could understand as a, a sense of um, urgency to really get back to brass tacks because everything that we had, the good things that we'd brought in from, you know, the last 2,000 years of historical development had also reached a point of, uh, needing renewal and then access to 
each other access to the world, to other people, to the way the Holy Spirit has moved and inspired other people. And and so in needing to get back to uh, the, the goals of the council, um, terrible with Italian, aggiornamento and then ressourcement, you know, renewal, mm -hmm. and then what is it? Return to sources. Return to sources. Yeah. And, and then out of that, create something that's more able to, you know, not just perpetuate the Western church, uh, but the sort of the kernel of what Catholicism is because the new world is so completely different to anything we'd ever seen before. Yeah. And the on the on the ground changes in the liturgy based on that mandate from the council and that uh, priority from the council was, I mean, one of the main ones was making mass in the vernacular, the language of the people. So the people could understand the prayers and pray it themselves mm -hmm. and not sit in during mass and read their devotionals and say their rosaries. And then, you know, lift their head up when they hear the bells ring at consecration, receive communion and leave, but that they could actually participate as baptized priests, making their own sacrifice along with the ordained priests. Mm -hmm. um, so making mass in the vernacular, um, uh, like stripping away, I, I, th I think the word that was used was uh, accretions, mm -hmm. like, like, like barnacles that grow in layers mm -hmm. on ships. These things that have been added on to the mass over the centuries were important and meaningful for the time that they were in. Mm -hmm. But now for the modern world, the church was like, we need to strip these away so that we can see this, the, the primary symbol underneath more clearly. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the, like, what are the needs of the modern world? And let's go back to the sources especially the early church and the church fathers mm -hmm. um, to get back to those, the heart of those symbols of the liturgy mm -hmm. and make those the center. Yeah. Um, as sort of a corollary to this, um, I've been slowly, uh, I discovered that in this past couple of weeks, the Our Father, for example, when it's prayed in Aramaic, right, there's this phenomenal beauty to Arabic and, and Aramaic which would have been the language that Christ himself would have used. But the cool thing about Hebrew and most ancient languages is they speak in puns, right? Every word and phrase has multiple levels of meaning and they're all intended. And so this, uh, this one person, he's actually a Sufi. Um, uh, I don't know, he's, he's a mystic. I don't, don't think they use priest or rabbi leader. And yeah, he pointed out, look, he took this first line, our father, you know, art in heaven and he translated it into arabic and he's like you can't put it into a single sentence you have to describe or lay it out in four radically different levels of meaning and i read those and it just gripped me it was so beautiful i posted them in the smart catholics community if those want to go back and find them but that sense of um i was just thinking about that and realizing the the fathers of the church in uh, Western Europe during the high middle ages with no access to Aramaic and for no ill intent of their own. Of course, they write these beautiful and reflections and meditations and they expound books and so on and homilies. Uh, we have so much of that from the saints, but as beautiful as it all is, it's a, a reflection based on the materials you had at that time. And for Vatican II, you know, to be like, uh, we now have this opportunity that we never had before. And as beautiful as all these things were, and as good as they are, we now actually have to wrestle with or engage with the, these original source materials mm -hmm. and then refresh what it all means. Because far too often we get the colonialization of the liturgy by the culture. And I think we talked about this in, uh, was it Culture Warriors episode? Um, that sense of- One of them. One of them. <laughs> how the culture can inform how we live out our faith as opposed to the other way around and we're we're blind to it and we can't see it and it's it's very normal but that's kind of the point of the active participation and the engaged christianity is to understand who am i what is my time now where do i live and who's around me and how do i live out that 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 witness you know yeah. in concert with my local community and if you're living in argentina if you're living in china or japan it's going to be very very different to what the west has held up as you know uh, this is the way that it is so yeah over back to you
<laughs> I was going to say, we're like a half hour into this and we haven't gotten to the actual document. The actual document. <laughs> well, on that note, dear friends, uh, allow us to just give a quick thank you to uh, the, the sponsor for this show, Select to Give. Uh, we're able to produce this show because they have supported us. Um, more Catholic leaders choose Select to Give International Tours than any other pilgrimage company. With 35 years of award-winning travel planning, they have a track record of excellence and faithfulness. And they're a small company with a big heart because every one of their pilgrimage trips helps to support and fund their 501c3 work, helping Christian families thrive in the Holy Land. So if you're ready to travel or looking to lead a group of your own, take the next step on your pilgrimage by visiting selectinternationaltours.com. Okay, so now that we've laid the groundwork, since most people are probably not actually going to read this document, and we hope that you do. It's short. This episode. It is Pope, short. It's like Pope Francis is known for writing ridiculously long documents. <laughs> this one's like this 15 like 10 to pages, 20 pages. 15? Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's an easy read because he might write long, but he always writes so easily to you know, to read. So we've sort of set the context maybe for entering into where he's going with this document. So now over back to you, Paul. Yeah. Where is this document going? So you're the scholar, uh, Dominic. So is it uh, the title of the document? Is it pronounced um, Desa, uh, Desiderio Desideravi? Yeah, that's where I would go. <sighs> yep. Okay. I'm probably not going to pronounce that again. Desiderio Desiderafi. What is the English translation of that? Ah, so that's so that's the fantastic thing. The title of the document um, comes from the Latin translation of Luke twenty two fifteen, which is Luke's uh, the, the beginning of Luke's account of the Last Supper, and Jesus says, "I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer." So, the title of the document is "I have earnestly desired," or "I have deeply desired." Mm. That really uh, stood out to me. Um, and I think we might have an episode on atonement theory at some point, which I'm, I'm itching to kind of get to just to listen and learn. But growing up so much, how do I say this? Um, at least in the way that I was brought up, or maybe the way that I heard it, so much of what the liturgy was obscured the Last Supper, and it was so focused on the, the passion and the, the the crucifixion and you know the passion and the death and not to diminish that in any way but what I loved about what this document does is it paired it back up again because in the moment there is this meal there is this celebration there is this union um, it doesn't make sense without the other you know yeah. but one was obscured and I, I appreciated that coming back and at the heart of it is and this is the heart of the charismatic proclamation is God's desire for us. Mm -hmm. um, so the heart of the liturgy, the Pope is saying in this, is God's desire for us. And I want I want to share some some key passages about that. This is the Paul reads something and then gushes about it. Part. <laughs> yeah, let's just gush over. So the 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 Pope quotes that passage from Luke. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Then the Pope says. These words of Jesus, with which the account of the Last Supper opens, are the crevice through which we are given the surprising possibility of intuiting the depth of the love of the persons of the Most Holy Trinity for us. Through these words, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. We can come to understand the depth of the love of the Trinity for each one of us, for me. The Pope goes on to say, Peter and John were sent to make preparations to eat that Passover. But in actual fact, all of creation, all of history was preparation for that supper. There's something about this moment where God, when, when he, or even before he created, was anticipating this last supper mm -hmm. because of his desire to eat with us, to eat with you, to eat with me. And that is the heart of all liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, I have, I have, I have passages. Okay. Uh, the Pope goes on. This is at some point later in the document. He says, before our response to God's invitation, well before, there is God's desire for us. 
we may not even be aware of it, but every time we go to mass, the first reason we are there, um, the first reason is that we are there by his desire for us, for our part, the possible response, which is also the most demanding asceticism is as always that surrender to this love, that letting ourselves be drawn by him. Indeed, every reception of communion of the body and blood of Christ was already desired by him in the last supper. I loved that reversal of uh, the attitude I think a lot of us take. Um, you know, we we would go to Mass either to punch in um, or we would go to Mass to get God um, because we need it. And yeah, that's true. And, and we're sinners and we need to be healed. And yes, that's true. But this sense of the Holy Father is like, no, you're coming because he called you first. Yes. He wants you to embrace him the way he has embraced us. Yeah. First. He, he, he goes on to this more. So this is several passages later. He's talking about the new Pelagianism, which we've mentioned before, mm -hmm. um, and how that can distort our view of the mass. Anyways, he says at one point, certainly we are not worthy to enter his house and we need a word to, of his to be saved. We have no other boast, but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The liturgy has nothing to do with ascetical moralism. It is the gift of the Paschal mystery of the Lord, which received with docility makes our life new. The cynical, and the cynical is another uh, word for the, for the upper room. Mm -hmm. The cynical is not entered except through the power of attraction of his desire to eat the Passover with us. And I'll say that again, the cynical. So you read here, the upper room the Last Supper, every Mass, is not entered except through the power of attraction of his desire to eat the Passover with us. In other words, the way that the most fundamental way or the primary way or the first way that we participate in the liturgy is we must be moved by the knowledge of his desire for us. We must be attracted by his desire for us. And it, it made me think of, when I first read this, it made me think of, um, uh, the story of Jesus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus's resurrection. They don't recognize who he is. So he's walking with these two disciples and they start lamenting the fact that Jesus died. And he's like, whoa, whoa, let me tell you about God's, God's promises. And it says that he revealed the, all the scriptures to them. What he did was he told them the story of God's desire for his people. And then it said their hearts were burning within them as he spoke. Then they invite him to stay and he breaks bread. And only when uh, he breaks the bread, do they recognize that it's Jesus and then he disappears. But there's this real sense of this movement of first, what Jesus did was he awakened in them, the knowledge, the understanding of God's desire for them. Then when their hearts were burning, out of the knowledge of God's love for them, then he brings them to the Eucharist. There you go. I don't have anything to add. It just strikes me on, you know, as terrible as this past century has been, and we're still trying to figure our way forward. Um, looking at the, the long arc of history, the long story of our, you know, the evolution of creation and the development to where things are today. And then for God to say, I have desired this moment with a great desire. I think that's what he says. Um, you know, and you sort of think back like not even 70, what is it? Insolment of man is like 70,000 years or something. At some point he's like talking to Adam and Eve and he's like, you know, this is good. Go forth and, and do these things. And, you know, but then he says that this meal is the one thing I've desired with a great desire to finally have you at a point where we can now talk face to face, you know, through the blessing of our bodies, you know, through this elevation of matter. I love the one line where he uses in there, um, uh, the Holy Father says, there's this elevation of uh, ordinary, normal material stuff. There's, there's oil and smoke and light and sound and silence and cloth and all of this. And and this um, silly sort of uh, hunger to be non-material. 
and just to be spiritual. And it's like Christ didn't even, he didn't do that. He took, he took, uh, you know, the fruit of the earth and the fruit of the vine, and he held it up and he said this, like you're not getting out of this without the blessing of matter, you know? And and that's something that's that's fundamental about Catholicism in orthodoxy as distinct from other Christian denominations that don't have a sacramental sense like we do. We have the sacramental view that's rooted in the incarnation, but even before the incarnation, what is the modus operandi of the Holy Trinity to, com- to have a relationship with us? What's through material uh, things? The Lord reveals himself to us throughout scripture and to today through material means. He gives us his very life through material means. He encounters us through material means. Our materiality is not um, some secondary thing, not an afterthought. The Lord intentioned, when God created us, he intentioned our materiality, mm-hmm. and he uses that to relate with us. Right. So, so, so the Pope says at one point, the incarnation, in addition to being the only always new event that history knows, is also the very method that the Holy Trinity has chosen to open to us the way of communion. Christian faith is either an encounter with him alive, or it does not exist. Christianity is an encounter and then a relationship with Jesus. And how do we do this except through the material means by which the Holy Trinity gave us to encounter Jesus? So, I mean, I have so many notes here, um, so many things. Uh, th- this is a key point throughout the document. The Pope um, talks about the power and necessity of symbols, because mm-hmm. sacraments are symbols. They're material things that symbolize some spiritual thing. Now, they're not just symbols, or they're not ordinary symbols. They're extraordinary symbols or supernatural symbols in that the thing that they symbolize also happens. The water doesn't just represent being washed away of original sin. It actually does that thing, right? Mm -hmm. But the Pope says two or three times in the document, modern man has lost our sense for the meaning and value of symbols. We've reduced existence either to a materialism or some type of like vague spiritualism or subjectivism. And we have difficulty grasping and entering into the meaning and value of symbols. And that becomes especially difficult because that's precisely the way that God wants to relate with us mm-hmm. is through symbols. So this is kind of what, perhaps the main theme of his document is to express this reality of the liturgy and then to propose and to encourage the church to uh, engage again, engage anew, informing people to help um, understand the value of symbols and participate in the liturgy through these symbols. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm watching a documentary series about different schooling types. And um, one of the points that stood out to me was with the formation of little children, you know, before first or second dentition, you know, losing their teeth and stuff, the attention given to what is communicated and when and how. And it was fascinating to me to see how completely different it is to a lot of what we do today. Um, but they would be, you know, how you use your body in digging in the earth, carving wood, climbing trees, having fun, learning how to dance, learning rhythm. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of thinking of, uh, or a lot of teaching to the brain directly. But when you use the hand as well to pick up a bird's nest, to garden, to build, you are also communicating to the brain. And that um, reminded me of what the Holy Fathers there saying, where to start again or to, to bring back to life all of these little these symbolic actions 
which are things that our bodies live through. They're like ideas that are lived out, uh, that are experienced, that become tangible. Um, because how we see is what we see. And either as adults or as children, how we walk them through or teach them the uh, the symbols then goes to inform how they're going to think later on, as opposed to trying to download information now and the body is kind of like flailing, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, yeah, it just struck me as just so interesting, the need to reverse this, to stop being afraid of the body, to stop being afraid of, I love this phrase, the blessing of matter. Yeah. Um, you know, and over to you. Yeah, the the value of matter is something that the Pope explicitly calls out. He's like, we have to, again, recognize the value of the material world, and likewise, the value of our own bodies. And then, along with that, recognize the um, the meaning and purpose behind that mm -hmm. uh, the material world, right? And the meaning and purpose and value behind our own bodies, because um, it's with he says the symbolic language of the body. It's with the symbolic language of the body mm -hmm. that we do everything that we right. relate to other people, and that's how we relate to God. Mm -hmm. I think the Celtic monks, wasn't it? They called creation the fifth gospel, uh, or even the first gospel, because it is—it's the first touch point that every you know person comes into contact with with reality, and then learns to see into it. I love his little point about you know what is the intent of matter, and it's in a way, it's such a healthy, fresh you know, a uh, breath of fresh air for those of us who are so. Uh, raised in materialism, the sense that matter is is it, and then we're trying to shoehorn spirits somehow into it, or or there's this big disconnect between them, and the sense that no matter and spirit are uh, they're the same thing, and that's a whole different discussion. But this sense that when he created water, you know, billions and billions of years ago, the intent was this is a symbol of, or this is something that's going to be used in a symbol for this action. Billions yep. of years later, not just like we need something wet that'll do. Yeah, but no, it was created with that intent. In um, and the Pope at one point he says, in the prayers of baptism, in the rite of baptism itself, mm -hmm. it walks through the um the use of water in creation and the use of water throughout Scripture, throughout salvation history. Mm -hmm. And what the Pope says, what this is telling us is that when the Lord created water. He had this person's baptism in mind. When the Lord used water to free his people from Egypt, when they crossed the Red Sea, he had this person's baptism in mind. That the materiality of water is not an afterthought, like you just said. Mm -hmm. um, on this line, here's another passage from the document. The Pope says, it's not a question of following a book or of liturgical etiquette. It is rather, he's talking about participation in the liturgy. It is rather a discipline um, in which, if observed authentically, forms us. These are gestures and words that place order within our interior world, making us live certain feelings, attitudes, and behaviors. They are not the explanation of an ideal that we seek to let inspire us, but they are instead an action that engages the body in its entirety. That is to say, in the body's unity, in our unity, sorry, of body and soul, right? There's something about the gestures and the words that shape our interiority. Mm -hmm. And so this is how we worship. We don't worship with our minds or we don't worship with our minds alone, right? And there's something like really fundamental about this where I get super distracted easy, even before I had four kids. Now I'm even more distracted at mass. But when I'm kneeling at mass, I don't normally kneel. That's not something that I normally do. There's something about that gesture, that posture, that communicates to my heart and my mind, I'm doing something different here than I normally do. Mm -hmm. Right? The physicality of that symbol of kneeling 
orients my interior interiority to the movement of the liturgy. I'm going to let you keep going with some of these quotes because we do want to get through them. Um, obviously, this I had something I wanted to share, but I've forgotten already. So keep going with the next quote then. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll just go through things. There's one where he talks about, um, and this is an old image um, of how just as Eve was formed from the side of Adam in the story of Genesis, how the blood and water flowing from the side of Christ, um, that's where... Uh, his bride, the the church, comes from, right? So the Pope raises that parallel between the first Adam and the new Adam and how um, after casting the first Adam into a deep sleep, God draws forth Eve. So also from the side of the new Adam, sleeping the sleep of death on the cross, there was born the new Eve, the church. And then the Pope says this, the astonishment for us lies in the words that we can imagine the new Adam made his own when he gazed at the church here at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh there's a lot of ways to read this but when mm -hmm. i hear that in the genesis story the context of that in the genesis story is adam is looking around at all of the rest of creation and he's realizing he doesn't have a partner mm -hmm. that he's somehow incomplete without a partner so god makes him a partner and when he sees her he says at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That when the Lord sees the church, when the Lord sees us, he says, at last, right? With the same longing, the same desire that Adam had uh, for Eve. Mm -hmm. um, so again, this, the Pope emphasizes, we must start with the proclamation and understanding of God's desire for us. That's where we must go first. Um, but in this passage too, is this language of theosis, which is throughout this document. The purpose of the liturgy is to be made into Christ. Mm -hmm. We become what we consume. But even then, Jesus says of the church, of all who are baptized, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You are me. This is the point of the liturgy. We become Christ. We are mm -hmm. Christified, um, which is the primary goal of all the sacraments and all of the liturgy. Um, so many things. I want to hit on, because he does talk about, he does contextualize this with his motu proprio from last summer, Traditionis Custodis. Mm -hmm. So, so I do want to touch on that. So he talks about how um, he essentially frames this desire to celebrate the old liturgy um, as something that distracts us from the real, uh, the, the purpose of the liturgical reforms, which is this full and conscious uh, participation in the liturgy. He also mm -hmm. says the same thing about um, the, the, the innovations of, of the liturgy after. These things distract us. They get in the way of what the whole point is. But mm -hmm. he, he dives into specifically the um, more, his critique of this desire to go back to the tradition. Um, and I'm looking for it. I think it was paragraph 31. <clears throat> He says, in this letter, I cannot dwell with you on the richness of these passages, various expression of the, oh, he's talking about teaching from Paul VI, of the teaching of Paul VI. Um, and anyways, he says, if the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed, and at the same time, the font from which all her power flows, we can understand what is at stake in the liturgical question. It would be trivial to read the tensions, unfortunately present around the celebration, as a simple divergence between different tastes concerning a particular ritual form. So he's, he's saying this question of the old mass and the reformed mass isn't simply a matter of taste. There's mm -hmm. something more important here and deeper here. He goes on, the problem is primarily ecclesiological. In other words, the problem has to do with the nature of the church herself. Mm -hmm. 
I, he goes on, I do not see how it's possible to say that one recognizes the validity of the council, though it amazes me that a, that a Catholic might presume not to do so, and at the same time, not accept the liturgical reform born out of the council. In other words, he's saying, we cannot fully embrace the teaching and application that both the theological and pastoral teaching of the council if we at the same time reject the liturgical teaching and liturgical reform of the council because mm -hmm. they are intimately tied together. Um, and he goes on, he says, uh, and at the same time not accept the liturgical reform born out of Sacrosanctum Concilium, a document that expresses the reality of the liturgy intimately joined to the vision of the church as described in the document Lumen Gentium from the council. He goes on, for this reason, as I already expressed in my letter to all the bishops last summer, I have felt in my duty to affirm that the liturgical books promulgated by Pope Paul VI and John, and John Paul II in conformity with the decrees of Vatican II are the unique expression of the lex orandi, the way, the way of prayer of the Roman rite. And that's a quote from uh, his document last summer, Trigionis Custodis. Mm -hmm. He says, the non-acceptance of the liturgical reform as also a superficial understanding of it distracts us from the obligation of finding responses to the question that I come back to repeating. How can we grow in our capacity to live in full the liturgical action? How can we continue to let ourselves be amazed at what happens in the celebration under our very eyes? We are in need of a serious and dynamic liturgical formation. So he doesn't see this big debate of traditionalism and the council and the old mass as unimportant, but he is saying it's a distraction and we need to move on and do what the intention of the church was as expressed in the council. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think when, um, uh, Complaints or, or points that are levied against the um, the the new mass that I've actually forgotten how to we refer to it the mass I guess we should now be saying as opposed to the old form is um, you know this call for you know the church grows organically and and so on and uh, developments to liturgy and so on should always be done organically that that was always the echo growing up this was such a rupture from the past and so on but I think that. Um, like what is pointed out in this document, it's it's looking too closely to a specific situation and not being able to see what is the larger curve of history, what is the larger organic growth, what is the needed growth that has been needing to be happening here. I mean, again, going back to that image of the Holy Father, you know, in the during the world wars, looking out at the world and thinking, where Yes, God's grace is all sufficient, but we have done something to uh, to not prepare all of these millions of children and these lives. What is it? And then the Second World War. You know, I can imagine that only intensified. You know, so that that need to then look at how are we uh, condensing everything into this unique sacrament or um, and symbol of what the liturgy is. And yes, there, there, there were some changes, you know, but honestly, this the beautiful thing about this document as well. And like what he's, he said in the past is, you know, I think it was Benedict, you know, both rights need to learn from each other. Now it's at a point where it's, this is the norm, but then you read through this document and, and you're like, everything that a traditionalist is hungry for, not even traditionalist, someone traditional, someone who loves the rubrics and the old right and so on, he's everything cool. that the human everything. heart hungers for yes so it really is it's not just a putting down of, of one side you know but it's it's also a call to a much greater reverence on the part of the norm and all of the, the daily masses that we go to and, and yeah. father's trying to rush and get through and you know and he outlines the six what is it seven different kinds of priests who, who turn mass yeah. into their yeah. own you know he, what he, does he call it he, he he says this there is something that i really enjoy probably more than I should about when uh, Pope Francis talks about or like when he turns to priests and says, okay, this is what you need to be doing. He says this, um, here is a possible list of approaches 
even when though opposed to each, even though opposed to each other, um, characterize characterize a way of presiding that is certainly inadequate. And here they are: a rigid austerity or an exasperating creativity, a spiritualizing mysticism or a practical functionalism, a rushed brickness, briskness, or an overemphasized slowness, a sloppy carelessness or an excessive uh, finickiness, a superabundant friendliness or priestly impassibility. Granted the wide range of these examples, I think that the inadequacy of these models of presiding have a common root, a heightened personalism of the, of the celebrating style, which at times expresses a poorly concealed mania to be the center of attention. So he is not, um, well, he is critical of this desire to go back and celebrate the old mass. Mm -hmm. He repeats multiple times, we need to be celebrating by the book. Mm -hmm. And actually the baptized are owed, they're owed a celebration of the liturgy, mm -hmm. according to the norms that the church um, has given us. We are owed that. And any priest for any reason, and he says likely the reason is uh, a concealed uh, desire to be the center of attention. Who changes that traditionally or progressively or wherever? Is is doing an injustice to the community. Mm -hmm. It actually goes on, and I, and I thought this was wonderful. He's again talking about priests, and he says the assembly has the right to to be able to feel in those gestures and words of the presider, the desire that the Lord has today as at the Last Supper to eat the Passover with us. Let me say that again: the assembly has the right to feel in the gestures and words of the presider, the desire that the Lord has to eat the Passover with us. In other words, the way that the priest presides over the liturgy must communicate in words, in deeds, in expressions, in his whole demeanor, God's desire for us. Not to teach us, go. not to, to do any type of self-expression, mm -hmm. communicate God's desire for us. I, I mean, we. I always hate it when people say, "And we just scratched the surface on this." And it's, well, what can you do? We got an hour here, so <laughs> uh, in the last couple of minutes, um, do you have a, a final quote or a thought? I, we didn't get through half of, I think, I, of the stuff you yeah. wanted to. But yeah. if we uh, had to pick something, where would you like to end? Um, here, I'll end. I'll, I'll end with the end of it. Um, the Pope says this. Let us abandon our polemics to listen together to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let us safeguard our communion. Let us continue to be astonished at the beauty of the liturgy. The Paschal mystery has been given to us. Let us allow ourselves to be embraced by the desire that the Lord continues to have to eat his Passover with us. All this under the gaze of Mary, Mother of the Church. Beautiful. Honestly, what excites me about this document is that it's it's a reaffirmation of reality. And he always says, you know, reality is greater than ideas. You know, the dealing with the person or the situation in the moment uh, is a call to a concrete creative response over and above the ideas that we might be bringing to that situation. In this case here, this is a reaffirmation of this reality of the liturgy against which our, our ideas must come in contact and be refreshed and so on. So what intrigues me about this is now that he's put this out, now what? You know, what's going to happen? What needs to happen? What do we need to start doing? Um, I, pff, that fascinates me. Like, what do we need to start doing to put it into practice or, you know, anything coming to mind, like just in the last week since it's come out? Well, I mean, um, this is a call to action, and he he goes for bishops, for priests, for deacons, uh, mm -hmm. and for catechists. So the call to action to help people enter into the liturgy more. So, as a catechist, I hope that this podcast, this discussion, is a first step in the particular role with the particular gifts that the Lord has given me um, to be able to do that. Uh, as well as, and he says this for everybody, as well as like um, 
we need to continue being formed by the liturgy ourselves. There you go. Um, when you mentioned pulling this, you know, doing this episode, it was exciting for me because um, I think like a lot of us, there's just tons going on constantly. And then, oh, a new document from the Holy Father. I'll get to it sometime. And then you kind of gave me a deadline. We're talking about this next week. It's, okay, I need to read this thing. So I'm at least, I have a sense of where it's going. And uh, I think that it's, it is important for us all to at least skim through or have a sense of what the Holy Father is saying, because he he is someone who is speaking uh, to the world. He is speaking to us as Catholics, directly to us, you know, to the priests and the religious among us. So it is important. It's such a watershed moment in history with his his election, with with his his papacy. Um, so taking the time to actually read what he has to say, he's he's our Father, the Holy Father to to the world. Uh, so. It's a beautiful document. Friends, if you get a chance, please do grab grab it. It's it's uh, up for free on the Vatican website. We'll drop a link here in the, the show notes. Um, come and if you see an element in it that just really piques your, your interest or sparks a thought or a question, grab that and share that with us in uh, the Smart Catholics community. Um, that was kind of a big thing for, for me. Starting Smart Catholics was actually reading what the Holy Father has to say and like, Okay, how do we create context? How do we make it easier for people to keep reading, staying up to date with what the Holy Father is saying? So if you enjoyed this video, please hit like if you're watching this on YouTube, or uh, please do leave us a good review on any of the podcasting platforms. Uh, this does help more people hear about the message of Pope Francis Generation. This show is sponsored by the Free Catholic Community. Come check us out on smartcatholics.com. We are free of trolls and ads and toxicity faithful to the Holy Father, Pope Francis, and the Church. We're committed to a culture of kindness and learning. If that sounds like you, come and check us out, smartcatholics.com. Paul, if people have questions that they want to leave, or maybe even ask you or follow up with you, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to to Pope Francis, uh, popefrancisgeneration.com. Um, and uh, if you're a paid subscriber, um, you get uh, access to episodes early, but also I'm... Uh, uh, be on the lookout if you're a paid subscriber or if you want to become one. Um, in the next week, I'm going to be sending out an invitation to uh, to be a part of um, some either. I haven't decided yet if we're going to do a live recording of the podcast or um, just a Q&A session, a virtual Q&A session. Um, but we'll be do, doing something that around the end of the month. And then paid subscribers are going to uh, also throw out their ideas for what topic we're going to wrap up this season with, um, which we're more than halfway through. We only have about another, another month yeah. left before we four episodes now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so also if you're a paid subscriber, um, you're supporting me, you're supporting this project, you're supporting, um, the writing that I do at Pope Francis generation and the, the retreats, uh, the retreats that I lead. Um, so your support is fantastic. So yeah, come check out popefrancisgeneration.com. Yeah, it's it's sad how little there is in terms of content like this. And so um, it's very much, you know, uh, I volunteer, right? Like Hunger Games, right? I volunteer, I'm gonna, I don't, you know, we may not be the perfect people to stand up and do this stuff, but we're, we're doing it. And we are incredibly grateful to those who are enjoying the show and, and who are supportive. So please do become a paid subscriber to... Uh, Paul, Pope Francis Generation, you are directly empowering and supporting and allowing him to support his family and keep producing this show. Till next time, friends, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. Remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you. <laughs>